Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll read verses 9 through 15. We'll be focusing this morning on verse 12. Ezra chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That is right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season, and we're not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, with Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. Let's pray. Our Father, as we hear Your Word this morning, I pray that our conviction would be much greater than the skill of the speaker. That our repentance would be much deeper than words can call out. God, we would encounter You today in our worship We beg to be brought near, even though we know it will demand that the sin be put away. For when we stand in your presence, we can only cry out that we are people of unclean lips. And God, we cast ourselves upon Your mercy. We cast ourselves upon Your grace. Because You have provided forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Lord, let us be bold. Coming before the throne of grace, not with ignorant boldness, where we skip to the throne of grace, but God with a boldness that knows even though You are all-powerful and all-knowing, we can trust in You. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. Amen. Last week we looked at Ezra's call to repentance to the gathered nation. And we see his conclusion in verse 11. We read it this morning. He said, Make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. That is His call to the people. That is why they were brought to this assembly. But you know there's an expression I hear really often. And that expression is, some things are easier said than done. And if we're honest, most things are easier to say than to do, aren't they? Ask a young child what they've done this morning between home and church, and they they can describe many things that they do. I got out of bed, I ate breakfast, I bathed, I dressed, I got in the car, I drove to church, I sat quietly, I ate lunch. A very simple list. It only took a few seconds to describe your entire morning, right? But parents, we all know it's our responsibility not only to list these things, but the onus, the burden is on us to make sure they get done. It's easy to say, get out of bed, but for teenagers sometimes, it's not a simple matter of their alarm sounding, and they joyfully leap from under the covers, their feet hitting the floor almost in a dance, because they are so ready to face the day. And each of the items on that list that I read requires some amount of forethought, some amount of planning, and in some cases, a great deal of effort to accomplish. There's nothing wrong with things being easier said than done. But the message we find in Ezra today is that in the matter of obedience, it is more important to do it than to say it. There are many different reactions that the gathered people of God could have had. And I won't spend time on any of these other than to list them. We see far too many examples of these sinful responses every day, all day. They could have denied their guilt, declaring that they didn't do anything wrong. They could deny that God even really meant what He commanded. After all, if He's a God of love, why would He be against any kind of love? They could have claimed that it was only Ezra's interpretation of God's command. The false prophets in Jeremiah's time perfected that tactic. They could have complained that the other people were sinning in other ways. So they were being unfairly singled out for this one little sin. They could have claimed ignorance and thus an exemption from obedience even after they had been told the truth. They could have agreed with Ezra that something should be done, but then decided that knowing this was sinful was really good enough for God. I confessed, it's alright. He's okay with me now. Or they could have simply ignored Ezra, expecting that this would all blow over, And nobody would need to change anything. 
the common denominator in every one of those false, sinful responses is the same. There is no repentance. There is no turning from the sin. There is no even confession of sin because confession means agreeing with God that the sin is bad and should be put away. But in all those responses that we hear over and over again, there's no confession. There's no repentance. Each one of these is an example of self-justification, self-righteousness, and is evidence of a fallen, unconverted heart. It is remarkable, even miraculous, that the gathered crowd did not display these sinful responses. These were people who had been living sinful lives for quite a while. But we are told that all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. All the assembly, including those who had married idolaters and those who had been complicit in that sin, all of those would have had, who would have difficult decisions, difficult conversations, and severed relationships in the coming days. So when the Bible says that all cried out, that is miraculous. Because that is a movement of God. And I mean that literally. No amount of words can bring about this magnitude of repentance. I think it's quite instructive that the words that Ezra speaks to the assembly are found in two short verses, while the words about this sin he speaks to God are spoken in more than a dozen verses over two chapters. What do you think the more important conversation was for Ezra? Because if Ezra had not gone to the Lord in prayer, if he had not gone to the Lord in confession, if he had not gone to the Lord in repentance, the words he spoke would have quite literally fallen on death ears, because it is God who made those words pierce them to the heart. The simple fact is this, my words or anybody else's words can change only your mind, can change only your opinion. A person's words to you can perhaps change the way you think, but the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit can change your heart. And that will carry the rest of you with it. A changed mind would say, somebody really ought to do something about that. While a changed heart cries out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Friend, is your heart changed today? When you hear the commands of God, which are those things that please Him, 
Does your heart cry to Him for mercy and forgiveness, despising your sin and loving Him more? Or do you respond with those faithless sayings I mentioned earlier, defending yourself and believing in your own goodness or own rightness? And if when I ask you these things, you thought to yourself that someone else needed to hear this message, shame on you. You need to hear this message. I must hear this message even as I speak it. Repentance is not something for others to do. It is for you to do first and most. That log in your own eye is of much greater danger to you than the speck in your brother's. And then Jesus declares about that in Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. Is your heart changed today? Have you sought out the sin in you today and declared to God that you are finished with that sin? Are you crying out with a loud voice in your soul to God that God is right and it is your duty to put that sin away? Seek God and seek His searching gaze. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 begs God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way that is a destructive way or a wrong way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Is that the prayer of your heart today? Take a moment now. I promise this business with God is more important than anything I'm going to say. If you repent from sin in your life, what more can I hope for this hour? What more could Ezra hope for when he stood up And he spoke his few words. Ask God in this moment. Close your eyes. Ask Him in prayer. Show you those hurtful ways in you. And then leave them. Leave them behind. Now if all the people gathered with Israel had done or gathered with Ezra had done, is agree with him. If that's all they had done, nothing of importance would have really been accomplished. 
Recall when John the baptizer saw Pharisees coming to watch him baptize people. He told them, bear fruits, make fruits in keeping with repentance. That's Luke chapter 3 verse 8. In other words, true repentance will change what we do, not just what we say or what we believe. Believing and saying come first. But repentance, like we talked about before, is easier to say than to do. And it is more important to do than to say. When the people heard John telling them to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. They asked, what would that look like? And he replied to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. That's verses 11 through 14 in Luke 3. Notice from the things he told them that repentance causes us to stop doing some things and to start doing other things. Stop collecting more taxes than you're supposed to. Stop using your own power for your own gain. Start sharing what God has given you. Start being content with what you have. There are other things even in this passage, but it's a good summary of his reply. Because in repentance, what you say doesn't matter nearly as much as what you do. The people replied, that's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. James puts it this way in his letter, in the first chapter, verse 25. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now immediately before this, James fairly mocks those who would not obey the word that they receive comparing them to a man who can't even properly use a mirror. In verses 23 and 24 of that first chapter, he says, If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. The man had gone to the mirror to check his appearance, to fix his face. And then he walks away without doing anything about what he sees. No shaving. That's the main reason I look in a mirror. No checking the nose for cleanliness. No removing the crumbs from the beard. I know I'm confessing now. He says the man just looks and he glances with satisfaction at what he sees but then can recall nothing about the encounter because he didn't make any changes. He didn't do anything about what he saw. That is the description of those who say they agree with Scripture, 
but fail to do the things it says to do. They're satisfied to read the Bible, to post verses on their Facebook timeline even. But they're not persuaded in their heart enough to make the necessary changes to their life. But in repentance, what you do matters even more than what you say. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 28, about repentance or hypocrisy. He said, what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answers, I will not. And afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you, the Pharisees. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him then. Obedience, according to Jesus, is defined by what you do, not by what you say, what you promise, or even what you believe. It is not defined by your intentions. It is defined by your actions. And the message of grace is this. That even if you have said the words before, even if you have rejected God in the past, Even if you said, I will go my own way, I will make my own decisions. It is not too late to do what you know is right. The first son regretted his refusal, repented of his attitude, you might say. And this led directly to the proof of his repentance. And that was doing the will of His Father. Nothing about repentance is truly hard to do. Nothing. The entire purpose in parenting, is in training children, is to teach them to stop doing the things they shouldn't do and to do the things they should, right? From the point you were a baby and didn't know right from wrong, you have been trained in your life to do the things you ought and not do the things you shouldn't. We tell our kids, stop playing with the electrical sockets. We tell them, start eating your yummy vegetables. But the lie that every one of us has bought from the very beginning, from the very first sin in the garden, is that, is that obeying God will cause us to miss something good. That's what the serpent told them in Genesis 3.5. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We don't repent because we don't entirely trust 
that we're not going to miss something. But repentance in all honesty may be painful. But the only reason it is painful is because we have incorporated sin into our lives. It doesn't make it hard to understand or even hard to do. It simply makes us reluctant to obey because of the pain involved. It's like building a house where deep, when the foundation is being laid, there's an error. There's an inconsistency. And then the house is built on top of it. I saw in the news the other day, there's a skyscraper, I think in San Francisco, that's becoming the leaning tower of San Francisco because the foundation was properly laid. And the only solutions they have are going to create great upheaval in that city. Sitting there in the heavy rain on that day with Ezra, there were many people who would be going through a painful time in the next three months. People who would be sending away wives and children. People whose homes that had been comfortable would now be torn. But hear this if you hear nothing else today. The reason repentance is painful is not that God is mean. It is because you have built the sin tightly into your own life. And it has to be removed. The pain is not from His commandment. The pain is from the successive layers of disobedience you have added to hold that sin in place. Because you were never made for that sin to begin with. The upheaval repentance may cause in your life is because you have used that sin to help define who you are. And if you have built your identity to include that sin, it will be necessarily painful to remove it or to change. You'll have to admit I was wrong. The three most difficult words for us to speak sometimes. You'll have people notice that you've changed. And you will have to rebuild that part of your life with things that honor God. But dear Christian, that entire effort becomes your testimony of your abiding faith in God and His abiding faithfulness to you. There is nothing of this world you leave behind that you will not receive greater from God's hand. One day Simon Peter was proclaiming All he and the other disciples had given up to follow Jesus. We read in Luke 18, beginning in verse 28, Peter said, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. To summarize Jesus' reply to him, there are more important things than what you have left behind. There are more important things than the sin He has removed from you. And it begins with God's command to follow Him. Most of us in here would say we trust His promises. Will we trust that His commands are just as good as our expectation of His promises? There is no commandment of God that will ultimately result in your shame or your humiliation. Obedience to God's commands results in our glorification, in our honor. Obedience to God's commands results in us pleasing our Heavenly Father. Living our lives as God commands will, not, will only result in our greatest happiness and our greatest contentment. And so you may be asking, is God trying to keep you from something? Yes. He's trying to keep you from pain. He's trying to keep you from being a useless servant. He is trying to keep you from death. He is trying to keep you from judgment. He is trying to keep you from the vanity of this world. And He is so serious about it, He sent His Son to pay the debt for your sin and to give you His rightness. He sent His Son to free you. That's how serious He is. He sent His own Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to abide with you and enable you to understand His Scripture. Clinging to our sin for any reason betrays our love for God. It is in our obedience that we prove even to ourself that the words of love we have spoken to God are true. It is by our obedience that our faith is proved. And so when you hear the word of the Lord, our reply, this side of the cross, now that we have been freed from the sin that so easily entangled us, is that is right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we look for your blessings. We pray for your blessings. And yet even then, 
we hold on to the sin that would keep us from them. We trust you to lavish your love upon us, but still find ourselves returning to sin over and over again. We are your people, called by your name. And yet we too often justify our sin, negate our sin, rather than repenting of our sin. God, I don't know the sin that each of us is dealing with here. But your Spirit does. And you sent your Spirit to lead us in the way of truth. And it is is that Spirit of truth, that Holy Spirit, that you have given to those who believe. And you have gifted Him so that we would be sanctified. Forgive us that we have proceeded with fits and starts. Forgive us where our actions did not match our words or even our belief. Let your Spirit give us a resolve to follow, to remove the sin, no matter the cost. Because God, you did not consider any cost too great to remove that sin from us. You gave your only Son to do that very thing. And it is in His name, by His name, that we approach you Amen.